Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we sat down with Dr. Matthew Nagra and reviewed the latest evidence on some of the most debated and controversial topics in nutrition. Dr. Nagra is a naturopathic doctor devoted to bringing the most up-to-date, evidence-based nutrition information to his patients in his clinic in Vancouver and to the public through his amazing social media channels. He has been a contributing author on multiple textbooks from professional health systems, including their nutrition textbook. He's also a public speaker and is well known for his content across multiple social media platforms, where he often tackles misinformation around diet and dives deep into the latest nutrition research. Our conversation revolved around topics such as the data on dietary protein source and quality, fats, low-carbohydrate diets, lectins and other anti-nutrients, seed oils, artificial sweeteners, and many other topics. We hope you enjoy the conversation. But before we jump into this episode, I wanted to gently remind you that I'm leading a free five-day Better Brain Nutrition Challenge beginning Saturday, February 4th, that will focus on the basics of brain-healthy eating for you and your family. I'll go live each day of the challenge from my kitchen to cook alongside with you, hopefully, a brain-healthy breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks so that you can see how delicious and simple healthy nutrition can be. In the meantime, we can have a Q&A. I'll go over some myths and misunderstandings in the field of nutrition and share some of my favorite tips and tricks for making a delicious meal. I'm doing this challenge because changing our eating habits can be one of the hardest shifts to make in our lifestyle, and I want to help. Not to brag, but as a neurologist, scientist, and having trained in the culinary arts, I have a unique understanding of what foods are best for our overall health and how to make the most delicious meals with those foods. To learn more and join the free Better Brain Nutrition Challenge, go to betterbrainnutritionchallenge.com and sign up today. Details will be in the show notes. Okay, let's jump into the episode now. Thank you so much for joining. Matt, it's so wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time and joining us on the Brain Health Revolution podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, definitely a big fan of what you guys do. Likewise, Likewise. we we just uh, we were talking earlier before the recording started, and I was uh, telling Matt how much we appreciate and love your your content on your social media, um, and you do it in such a beautiful and palatable way. It's easy to understand, and um, I, I always find it hard to uh, convey good information, especially for something as complicated as nutrition in 90 seconds or maybe 30 mm -hmm. seconds, but you do it beautifully. So we really appreciate that. And I think that's one of Thanks. the reasons why we wanted to spend some time speaking with you because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Isn't yeah. Oh yeah. Every day, <laughs> every day I'm faced with uh, more and more misinformation. Yeah. As much as the chaos exists, I love the fact that there are reasonable evidence-based individuals like yourself out there too, that presents the real data without any fuss, without any, um, you know, um, cover-ups. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think we should probably just start our conversation from there. Um, as, as you know, and as you have shared, nutrition sounds complicated and there's a lot of people fighting about it and they have different opinions and views. But when you look at the bigger body of evidence, 
it's essentially, you know, a variation of a single theme that keeps coming back to us over and over again. I wanted to kind of start from that that perspective, from a bigger perspective of what we know as far as diet and health is concerned. And then we can dive in and into the deeper um, health outcomes, specific diseases, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But what do we know so far as far as diet and health is concerned? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, the debates and, and the misinformation and all that that's, that's shared online, because a lot of those things that are typically argued about are so minor in the grand scheme of things. It's like an argument between animal and plant protein or, you know, one type of grain versus another or just, you know, I know Dr. Gregor always says broccoli or broccolini to, you know, make a joke of it. Um, Whereas really, when we take a step back and look at all the dietary guidelines across the globe and in just about every, you know, country that has natural guidelines um, or even major health organizations, American Heart Association, for example, um, it's very consistent. It's a diet that is centered on whole grains, fruits, vegetables, uh, with plant or fish protein, uh, nuts and seeds and unsaturated fat rich oils. Like that is basically the basis of every guideline you're going to see across the globe. They also mention that, Hey, if you're going to have meats, choose lean meats, ideally not super high in saturated fat. Um, and then when it comes to, to, you know, a few things like eggs, for example, um, they'll say, you know, it can be a part of a healthy diet, but maybe don't go too crazy with it either um, as far as the cholesterol content goes. And that's really it. If you know that, I think you're doing pretty well. Um, And then you you get into the weeds on a lot of the other things online, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully stated. And all of this comes from the different studies, observational studies of dietary patterns like the Mediterranean diet, Mm -hmm. the MIND diet, the DASH diet or dietary approach to stop hypertension, Mm -hmm. um, the vegetarian diet. And um, when you look at the elements in all of these dietary patterns, it's essentially what you said, eat foods that are unprocessed, mostly plants. And if you are going to add any animal products, it should be fish or some lean lean meat and proteins and things of that nature Mm -hmm. over and over again. Um, obviously when, uh, when people are faced with this data, uh, you hear back and say, oh, well, but it's epidemiological data and the way they record information is through food frequency questionnaire, which is such a, an old system and people can't remember. How do you, how do you answer that? Yeah. So there's a few things, um, for one, and that this is actually a mistake I've made in the past. Um, epidemiology actually encompasses randomized controlled trials as well, technically under the umbrella the way that it's used typically is that it's it's uh, just used interchangeably with what we call observational research, where you're you know following a defined group of individuals. Let's say, uh, I mean, the Harvard Nurses Health Study or Health Professionals Follow Up Study. They're looking at nurses and doctors in the U.S. within a specific age group who are enrolled back in the um, I believe is the mid '80s and then followed for 30 plus years. So you, you define this group. You have certain criteria for including or excluding people, and you follow them for a period of time. And yeah, you record their dietary intake with what are called food frequency questionnaires. And these are like really complicated, or I shouldn't say complicated, very complex. Um, um, and, uh, and um, uh, you know, they just incorporate all sorts of, of different foods. Like, for example, the ones used in those studies even broke down different types of nuts, like walnuts specifically. And, um, and then you, you know, say in the, ne- in the last X amount of time, on average, how much roughly did I eat? That's of, of course, it's not perfect. You're not going to get an exact, accurate amount of what that person's eating. But what you need to know is that people who report eating more 
do they on average actually eat more than people who report eating less? Like that's ultimately what you need to know, whether it's down to the half a cup or, or whatever, or within a 10, 15 gram uh, measure, that's not super important, um, at least for that sort of accuracy. So that's one thing is, is, you know, it's typically just kind of misunderstood what the importance of it is and how it's done, but then they're validated. So what that means is they actually, prior to conducting that study, they'll assess people's dietary intakes with these food frequency questionnaires. And then they'll repeatedly, even randomly, maybe call them and conduct a 24-hour diet recall. What do you eat in the last 24 hours? Or have them record on separate days. Um, or they might even measure on blood tests certain biomarkers that are related to various foods and see how well does that food frequency questionnaire actually correlate with those measures. And if it's pretty good, well, then you know that this questionnaire, the way that it's designed, actually gives you a pretty decent idea of what they're eating long term. But what I really like to point out with this is that if it's true that you know people don't know what they're eating or, or they can't recall what they ate over the long term, then when compared to people with, say, mild cognitive impairment, they actually shouldn't do better. People without cognitive impairment shouldn't do better than people with mild cognitive impairment if it's true that they just can't remember anything. Well, we actually have studies evaluating that and measuring blood biomarkers, tracking intake of those foods, or tracking nutrients or biomarkers related to those foods. And you see that people without mild cognitive impairment or without any cognitive impairment actually perform better than people with mild cognitive impairment, meaning that, yes, with some level of accuracy, they are recalling what they're eating. So on like all of these different you know, measures, I, I think we can, we can look at food frequency questionnaires as being a pretty good tool. Not perfect, but pretty good. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and one thing that we always kind of tell or try to elucidate is the fact that there are three variables that, roughly three variables, that you look at to make sure that a study is valid, the size, the power of the study, you know, and, and that helps you quite a bit. Your, your instrument, the instrument of measurement, the outcome instrument, if it's a very accurate me measurement uh, tool, such as for diabetes or glucose, then your, your, your population can be smaller and, and that, that helps. And then also the length of the study. <clears throat> and if you have studies that have a combination thereof, that's as good as, I mean, I, I would go as far as say many randomized clinical trials because we know that randomized clinical trials have their own limitations because they're a Absolutely. window in limited by time. And, and uh, so that has its own limitations. So by using a broad brush to uh, you know, negatively paint um, uh, observational studies, both prospective and uh, retrospective, is not really understanding this science and how it works. But that's an easy you know, ad hominem that you can uh, attack nutrition or nutrition science that's been done for decades now. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just bewildering that still, still works in many populations. Yeah, and what's really funny about that is, well, for starters, we first determined that smoking is causally associated with uh, lung cancer because of epidemiology or because of observational research. And the nutrition research that's conducted today does a way better job of accounting for confounding variables, other lifestyle factors and, and medical history that might impact, uh, say, cardiovascular risk than most of the smoking literature has ever done. If you look mm -hmm. at smoking data, they don't even account for diet most of the time or, or other factors. And yeah, chances are those who are smoking probably aren't eating as healthy either. And 
and you know uh, maybe not exercising as much but a lot of those studies don't even consider that so it's just really a double standard in, in the sense that you know you'll accept it with smoking literature and hopefully most cases but you won't accept it with the nutrition literature what a great point so yeah i That's mean the, so true. the amount of confound in those studies is yeah uh, would, would, would uh would shock anybody who's in the field at this point yeah, you're right yeah exactly yeah but it's um <laughs> it's also interesting to hear some people and you pointed out the time factor um people not understanding that there are situations where you just can't you simply can't do randomized control trials especially when you look at diseases that have that lag time like mm -hmm. for example cognitive impairment and dementia that take decades for the pathology to manifest itself into measurable symptoms and disease per se um, it's just impossible. And sometimes it's even unethical to do that. Yeah, too. I mean, yeah, you, imagine. That's a good point. Yeah. Sorry. No, I was going to say, just imagine, yeah, imagine that, like, you know, conducting a, a 30, 40 year long randomized controlled trial, you know, trying to assess cognitive impairment. Like, that's just absurd. Yeah. yeah or, or even a short study of cocaine or oh, yeah. of, of <laughs> yeah, arsenic sure. or cigarette yeah. for that matter. But, but wait a second. Even doing a short studies perspectively of, you know, high saturated fat foods is actually in any circle is considered somewhat unethical. Think about that. Why is that the case? Because we have enough of a enough data, enough um, uh, um, not causal, but correlational data that the ethics flag is raised. So that mm -hmm. should that's a great point that you make is that. You can't, you can't use it. But, but one study that we looked into, actually, you, you were involved in California teacher study. Right. Look at this study. 133,000 people over more than 20 years yeah. with a questionnaire that's pages and pages. Yeah, 55 uh, pages of questionnaires. Just yeah. a nightmare. And then I was involved with the uh, Adventist Health Study, which is nearly 50 years. I mean, Adventist is one, Adventist is two nearly 50 years, 96,000 people. We were talking about number, the end, the power is huge. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the timeline is huge. And then as far as tools, 57 plus pages of data captured over and over again. Even if there's noise in that, look at how that noise can be taken out with all this data being captured. So it's just uh, bewildering where, uh, where people who don't understand epidemiological data, which clinical trials are part of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. yeah, negatively of it. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing with, like, let's say we're looking at cardiovascular disease research, it's not like we're just relying on the observational research either. Yes, we have the observational research looking at long-term health outcomes. We have a few randomized controlled trials, you know, five or so years long that we're are doing the same thing. But then we have plenty of randomized controlled trials looking at biomarkers related to disease. Like, so, you know, we can see how different foods or dietary patterns affect blood pressure, affect LDL cholesterol things that we know are causally associated with cardiovascular disease or, or very likely to be. So, um, so you know, you're drawing from these multiple lines of evidence. You're not just pointing to one study or one type of study. Um, you just see, you see it in kind of every, every corner. Love it. Music to my ears. Yes. yes. I wish we all talked about that and the nuance all the time. Amazing. I think, um, I think now is a good time to kind of take a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the, I don't even want to call it controversial, but some of the issues that are becoming more and more prominent on, on social media, and we hear a lot about it. And we'll start with some dietary patterns, but then specifically some food groups that are vilified. 
And one of the most common food that is vilified, at least in the realm of brain health, Matt, is carbohydrates, right? Mm. Like it's very common for people to say, you know what, I'm not going to eat carbs. I mean, I get so many messages from people saying carbs are bad. Um, and even though we know that carbohydrate is not a single entity and that there are different types of carbohydrates, it's, 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 it's seemingly difficult for people to be able to look at it in a very nuanced way. Carbs are bad is something that is accepted and people think that whole grain bread, uh, brown rice, and lollipops are all carbs and they should all be avoided. <laughs> Um, but, you know, we, we see something else. We see evidence to the contrary. Complex carbohydrates are great for us, but it's the simple and the refined carbohydrates that tend to harm our health. And you talk about that uh, as well, uh, whether mm -hmm. it's the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet. It essentially highlights complex carbohydrates, but it denies or it de-emphasizes refined carbohydrates. I want you to kind of just like explain the difference between the two and what we can do as a society to raise that up and the benefits of complex carbohydrates for that matter. Yeah. So if we're talking about, you know, complex carbohydrates uh, typically come, you know, wrapped in fiber as well. So in the form of whole grains, even in the form of fruits, um, we see that consumption of those foods is consistently associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular disease, all-cause mortality. There was a recent paper on, uh, I believe it was whole grains and dementia as well. Um, seeing you know improvements and outcomes there. So uh, wherever this these concerns over those foods is coming from, I have no idea when it comes to the actual literature. It's incredibly one-sided. It's one of the most one-sided areas of the nutrition literature out there when it comes to whole grains and fruit intake and health outcomes. Um, so it's it's really actually this is I think a good lesson across the board when it comes to nutrition, it's really just honing in and speculating on these possible mechanisms of action. So basically what's happening is you'll see people, you know, suggest that, okay, sugar sweetened beverages might maybe associated with higher risk of something like cardiovascular disease. We know that uh, sugar can raise your blood sugar levels um, after you consume it. We know that high blood sugar levels are, um, you know, a sign of diabetes. We know that that's bad in, in many different ways. Um, and then it just, it all gets conflated. Like, okay, anything that contains sugar or carbohydrates is going to have the exact same effect. When in reality, you, you zoom out, you look at what is the actual impact on health outcomes when you consume a given food, you know, in its whole form. Um, and when you do that, you just see that those foods are consistently beneficial. And even in randomized controlled trials, you, you know, feed fruit or whole grains, and you consistently see improvements in blood sugar markers, at least in people with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just this idea of, of it contains something, therefore it's bad. And we see the same thing on the other side. You know, We see with red meat a lot of the time, they'll say, oh, it contains XYZ nutrient, therefore it's good for you. It's a good source of it. When actually, let's zoom out, look at the health outcome data when you're having, say, a serving of red meat a day, it's consistently associated with a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Why would we say that that's a healthy food? Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just the way that, that these things get completed and it, it's really hard to, you know, explain that sort of nuance again on social media where people, I mean, you see a lot of the time people just throw a bunch of claims at the screen basically without providing any evidence or, uh, you know, and then it takes you 20 minutes to debunk what they said, so, yeah, uh, which we're both, we're both familiar with. 
Definitely. Um, like you said, in support of what you're saying, you know, when you look at dietary patterns that have been associated with better health outcomes, and I'm just going to stick to the brain part of it as, <laughs> as a neurologist, when you look at the mind diet, for example, you know, one, uh, along with vegetables, one of the biggest category of foods that is pushed, you know, four to five servings a day is whole, whole grains. That's yeah. complex carbohydrates right there. And the same goes for Mediterranean diet. And the same goes for the dietary approach to stop hypertension and better mm -hmm. health outcomes. So, um, yeah, it is it is kind of bizarre. But um, hopefully, as the audience is listening to this conversation and, you know, from people who really, truly care about data and from all the data in front of us, not all carbs are the same. Complex carbohydrates are incredibly important. And for brains specifically, glucose is actually the preferred fuel. That's how the brain is mm -hmm. fueled by the glucose that comes from co complex carbohydrates. So cutting that out can actually cause a lot of trouble. I mean, we, we just had a talk on uh, gluten and I try to go over some of these logical fallacies. I'm, I, I try to get into under the underlying psychology of how, like you just said, the, the amount of data on, on, on uh, when it comes to this topic, when it comes to the topic of carbohydrates, it's so one-sided. Yeah. That to somebody like me, it's bewildering. How could the psychological pathways gotten their way into this uh, population psyche where despite this, this disparity of data, the other side still has almost like a false equivalency, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and the, some of the logical fallacies we talked about is this. Uh, one of them was the um, Gishgallop Gish yeah, yeah, bandwagon and then, yeah, fallacy. Yeah, and, and the bandwagon fallacy. And all of these things, uh, oh, the... Um, uh, the, in any case, is the idea of that speaking about the one unusual thing is always more striking. It's more visible. It gets more visibility mm. than the common, banal, dull uh, uh, factor. Oh, yeah, carbohydrates are good. But yet you highlight one little unusual factor and then all of a sudden it takes all of we, we saw this again the today. Lone Ranger. Yeah. The Lone Ranger, yeah. The Lone Ranger fallacy. Butter. Uh, we're not going to name the people, but somebody put out an article that said, oh, butter, it, it appears that butter is good for you. And all of this was based on one of the fats in, in a, and we're doing a talk on this, one of the fat elements, which is one of the smaller fat elements. Butyrate? Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, uh, small fat elements of butter yeah. showing some positive effect on cellular models, not yeah. even animal models, not even human models. Yeah, that was just highlighted because people want to hear the unusual. Yeah, so so we, we we're talking we're talking about uh, EPA DHA, but then there's another one called DPA. docoa hexanoic acid yeah. or uh, docoa pentanoic acid DPA, yeah. and that's found in butter. And then now so suddenly everybody's saying, "Well, butter is back." It's just nonsense. Yeah, it's yeah and, and it's it's the same idea like what I just talked about, where it's just you're honing in on a possible mechanism that's something that appears to do something in a petri dish. Um, and kind of assuming that that'll, that'll be how it works in humans. Um, you know, and, and one actually example I often use to point out why it's not good to focus on these mechanisms or, or to like hyper-focus on them is actually exercise. And because, you know, exercise, I think everybody agrees, super healthy for long-term, you know, cardiovascular risk, for brain health, for uh, risk of all, total mortality. But exercise at a moderate to vigorous intensity actually increases inflammation in at least the short term, possibly even up for a couple of days at, at most. And so imagine if someone were to take that and say, well, actually, we have these studies showing that you, you see a bump in inflammation for X amount of hours. 
We know that inflammation is associated with XYZ disease, therefore exercise is unhealthy, right? Without zooming out and actually looking at what is yeah. the net effect in human models, obviously, um, over the long term, in which case, again, totally one-sided as far as the evidence goes, right? And, it's and so such it's such a good point. Of, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love yeah, that. Same you, can make, you can come up with 10 other examples. Of your creatinine yeah. levels go up. And there's been studies that show when your creatinine levels go up, that, that affects your kidneys in a negative way. Yeah, if you kind of focus on these little elemental units, then you can make a story, whatever story you want to make, unless yeah. you look at it in the bigger picture. You're so, yeah, that's exactly right. Or on the reverse side, there are these um, individuals in the realm of neuroscience who say salt is incredibly important do not cut down on salt because the brain needs salt for neurotransmission i mean yeah it does but do you know how much we're getting and you know not and 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 danger of that is when you say something like that that salt is not bad or for example you know a particular thing is good for you and not showing the bigger picture a lot of individuals just forget about the bigger picture. They don't mm -hmm. care about the nuance or the long-term effect of that element. And they just dive in and they think that that's a good thing. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is I'm guessing those people also suggest low carb. And would I be correct? Yeah. And that's because our brain, our brain kind of uses carbohydrates too. So wouldn't the same logic apply to increasing carbohydrate intake? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're, inc yeah, yeah. they're inconsistent in, in the way that they apply those uh, standards as well. Yeah. Tell us about the latest information that you have come across as far as low-carbohydrate diet is concerned, which kind of goes very closely along with ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. But um, if you could expand on what the data shows on low-carbohydrate and health outcomes. Yeah, so it really depends on the makeup of the low-carb diet. Just like there's not one kind of vegetarian diet, there's not one kind of high-carb diet, there's also not one kind of low-carb diet. Um, so... What we really want to look out for is, is especially saturated fat intake. So if you're eating low in carbs, typically you're going to be much higher in fat. And at least the way that a lot of people in the general public uh, kind of adopt low-carb diets these days, it is much higher in, in saturated fat um, or in uh, animal protein sources, which typically come packaged with saturated fat. And actually, there was a, a recent study where it looked at low-carb diets that are more plant-based versus animal-based. Um, and uh, I can't recall the exact specifics of this, but I can totally send it to you to, to link down below. Uh, but they ultimately found that more animal-based low-carb diets ended up increasing risk of cardiovascular disease, whereas the more plant-based approach, not so much. And this is actually corroborated by research we have um, by Dr. David Jenkins, fellow Canadian, on the Eco-Atkins diet. And so the Eco-Atkins diet is designed to be a low-carb plant-based diet. So the main fat sources are things like nuts, seeds, and oils. And then of course, they're eating plant protein sources, lots of fruits and veggies, or I'd say limited fruit, but a lot of veggies. Um, and, uh, and you see that it improves markers of say LDL cholesterol more than even low fat vegetarian diets, which they're compared to. Uh, in some cases, if you incorporate certain foods, you can even get, you know, s some reductions that are similar to low dose statins in some cases, which is really impressive. So um, because this is sort of an exception to the whole mechanism rule, but because we know that LDL cholesterol can cause cardiovascular disease, I'd put much more weight in a reduction in that marker than I might in some other markers. Um, and so we have evidence there. Whereas one, uh, study that came out, I think it was last year, two years ago on a ketogenic diet 
a very animal-based ketogenic diet uh, in healthy women. So healthy young women uh, who were uh, placed on this, this low-carb, high and saturated fat keto diet that was designed to mimic the sort of keto diet that a lot of people in the general public consume. So very high in saturated fat, you saw ridiculous increases in their LDL cholesterol levels. Like in some cases, it was to the point where you would suspect they have something called familial hypercholesterolemia, which is a genetic condition leading to really high levels that often results in heart attacks in people's 20 or 20s or 30s. Um, and so you know, that would be my biggest concern around uh, potential for low-carb diets is, is you know those really animal-based, high-saturated fat ones. Whereas you know, adopting a more plant-based approach might actually be quite healthy. How that compares to a healthy iteration of maybe a more moderate fat diet, don't really know at this point. I don't think we have a really solid comparison there. But uh, but either way, I would I would emphasize more of those fiber-rich plant foods and unsaturated fat sources. I have a question. Did you say that when they the, the, was the comparison there between a plant-based keto versus a non-plant-based keto? And the, oh, the keto? No, no. So that keto was, um, I believe it was just general like dietary guideline sort of approach. So, um, so you know, kind of probably moderate fat, higher carbohydrate, more whole foods based as well versus okay. a, a very animal-based keto diet. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, in the realm of uh, brain health, also ketogenic diet, as you may know, has been touted as the best diet for brain health. And there are some influencers who say that's the diet that you need to go on because that can prevent Alzheimer's disease. And when you look at the data, there actually is no, there's no evidence that it prevents cognitive decline. It has been used in very uh, small groups of people with either moderate to advanced Alzheimer's disease that have been put on a you know, ketogenic diet. And even when they've been put on a ketogenic diet, reaching that level where they are in ketosis is first of all, very hard. And then second, mm -hmm. the kind of neuropsychological scoring systems that they used um, were, you know, the difference was so subtle that it didn't really make much of a difference as far as their activities of daily living was concerned. So yes, if it went, if the scoring mm -hmm. went from, say, for example, from 25 to 26, did that mean that they were able to, for example, start driving again? Or did that make them do better, uh, you know, finances or write checks or be able to take care of themselves better? <clears throat> no, the, the, the change was so subtle and so small that it's kind of dangerous for us to make it a public health, uh, uh, you know, message and, you know, mm -hmm. a, an announcement about it. And that's really bothersome, especially because we know that uh, a saturated fat, heavy ketogenic diet can mm -hmm. cause vascular damage. And we know that Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia can actually increase with saturated fats. I think it's pretty dangerous to say ketogenic diet, at least an animal-based ketogenic diet is helpful. So that's yeah, quite bothering. absolutely, absolutely agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the other things about this, uh, the these short studies, uh, the, that's quite problematic. It doesn't matter how randomized you make it, how double blind or or even triple blinded with the well, with pharmaceuticals you can do try try triple blinded, but in in, in in nutrition you can't. So how double blinded it is when your sample size, the biggest one is thirty eight, and your length is three months. And oh, your yeah. delta is one, yeah, uh, uh, basically one point and a scale of 25. 
it means absolutely nothing. Just the fact that there's an observational element, there's an observer phen phenomenon, that in itself will, uh, will negate it. And the fact that majority of the negative studies don't get published. So when we do meta-analysis, we look at, we try to find what, you know, uh, in, um, in clinicaltrials.gov, what studies were recorded and which ones published. And when you look at which ones were not published, it was all the negative studies. So when you don't include the negative studies and you're only yeah. including the positive studies that are only three months and 20 people with one point difference and a 24 point scale, it absolutely means nothing. Mm -hmm. And yet, and that's where most of ketogenic diet studies reside in that realm. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's uh, to us, it's just uh, incredibly frustrating where they get as much, um, that one point gets as much noise as a 50-year yeah. study on 96,000 people. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's it's yeah. uh, it's almost like p-hacking at that point, just like trying to pick out a, a positive finding and running with it. It yeah, is, it yeah. is. It's pretty sad. So living in a society where carbs are vilified, there's also emergence of um, food products and you know artificial sweeteners and replacements for sugar and sweeteners. And I know that uh, we've had multiple discussions on artificial sweeteners on social media, and they have been vilified too. You know, things like sucralose and mm -hmm. um, sugar alcohols, um, monk fruit sweeteners and things of that nature. And as you may recall, there was a paper that came out just, uh, I think it was a few months ago, that showed that, you know, there are certain artificial sweeteners that are benign, but then some of them can change your microbiome. And there was just so much back and forth between you know, nutritionists and dietitians online. What is your understanding of artificial mm. sweeteners? Are they good or are they harmful and we should stay away from them? Um, yeah, so uh, artificial sweeteners, actually something I've looked into a bit. I've, I've done a couple of posts on that. Um, one of the issues with the research on artificial sweeteners is the people who are more likely to be consuming artificial sweeteners are those who are either maybe struggling with weight management, people who have you know, maybe had like pre-diabetes or at risk of diabetes, you know, people with potential for pre-existing or risk of certain chronic illnesses. And so when you do a study looking at artificial sweetener intake versus no artificial sweetener intake or, or low artificial sweetener intake, um, it can kind of bias the results towards negative outcomes for people using the artificial sweeteners. So there was one actually really good meta-analysis uh, that was published a few years ago, and they only included studies that did repeated measures of intake over long term. So you know that they weren't like hopping on the, the artificial sweeteners because of of issues. Um, they also accounted for substitutions. So what they were consuming it in place of, was it instead of, uh, say, water? Was it instead of uh, sugar-sweetened beverages? And no doubt, without question, they are, at least as far as things like cardiovascular disease, are going to be better than sugar-sweetened beverages. Absolutely. I, I don't think there's any debate to be had there. Sugar-sweetened beverages, probably one of the worst things that you could consume regularly as far as that goes. Now, compared to water, this is the interesting thing. No significant findings. So they weren't actually significantly worse even compared to water. Um, oh. Now, the amounts that they're consuming, you know, are they having a two liter Diet Coke a day or or is it, you know, a bit mixed in with with various foods, maybe a, a can here or there? You'd have to dive into each individual study to really look at that. And I haven't done that. They didn't do like a dose response or anything. Um, but generally speaking, I haven't seen anything super concerning about, you know, pretty modest intake of them um, again. I wouldn't necessarily go for the two liter bottle at this point based on what we know, but, uh, but I, I certainly think they're a better option than sugar sweetened beverages. And of course I would favor water or something like tea or coffee over 
um, over most other beverages. But I also don't think it's a huge risk to you know indulge in some some artificially sweetened beverages uh, here or there. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And when we talk about sugar sweetened beverages, sometimes people think that brown sugar is better than white sugar. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, but, but sugar is sugar, you know, whether yeah, it's sugar, sugar, sugar. White sugar, whether it's honey, agave syrup or maple syrup, yeah. um, it, they may actually have small differences as far as their, you know, effect is concerned and absorption is concerned, but it's essentially the same thing. Or when yeah, we yeah. were, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say the one, the one place where I wouldn't say sugar is sugar is in fruit, as we've already kind of talked about, yeah, right, trapped, right, trapped yeah. in all the fiber and everything. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What about honey though? Um, I would say it's very, so yeah, it has a little bit of nutrition, um, potentially a bit of antioxidant capacity. At the end of the day, it is just another added sugar yeah. as far as, you know, the form that it comes in and, um, you know, it's not going to have that fiber and everything either. So I would just treat it like any other sugar. Yeah. You remember mm -hmm. in, uh, when we were at uh, Cedar sinai uh, Beverly Hills, and we had one person come and says, don't worry, Dr. Shares, I, I have Tasmanian sugar. I'm like, I, I still haven't found Tasmanian sugar, but maybe she was trying to. She, was trying to, uh, uh, she said it was natural, right? Yes. So this whole natural fallacy, because it's not really processed, it may be better. But you know, again, it was extracted; it was processed sugar. And when we told her that it's no different from any other form of sugar, she was not very happy about that. Yeah. Um, but again, I I think um, you know the the nature fallacy when people say that mm -hmm. you know if it's uh, if 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 it's if it's not well as far as just specifically sugar is concerned really it doesn't make much of a difference at all but you're right i think it's important for us to highlight the fact that the sweetness that is in a whole fruit or the sugar that mm -hmm. is in a whole fruit form along with the fiber along with the nutrients is a world different from the table sugar that we have mm -hmm. in front of us but to belabor this point a little more, because I really think that the beauty of truth or the proximity of truth is the complexity. And, and, and people think that science is, is so wrong because look, now we have, we know more. Now we know, well, that's the strength of science. We yeah. learn a little bit, it's imperfect. And when we get new data, it actually in retrospect, it looks very, uh, uh, you know, uh, unsophisticated and uncomplicated, but that, that's the evolution of data and, and science. But um, with regards to oh, fruits, not all fruits are equal either. I mean, so mm -hmm. so we just have to be aware of that. Whether it's yeah. sugar content, it's release release phenomenon, or whether it's an, it's anti-inflammatory, antioxidant capacities, there are little differences, and and we don't have to worry about it. But in certain people, they do actually. Yeah, and if I were if I were to pick out some that sit at the top, I'd say berries are probably the best of the best uh, as far as fruits go. So yeah, there's definitely a hierarchy for sure. Yes, definitely, yes. definitely. Um, let's dive into. Another controversial area, which is protein. We're going to deal with a lot of controversies today with Matt. Yeah. Um, as you know, and as you've spoken about it many times on your social media pages, and I've heard you um, on discussions with other individuals, there's, there's a big fight as far as protein is concerned, especially when it comes to the quality of protein. There's a notion out there that, um, you know, all proteins are not the same, that animal proteins can be better absorbed by your body. Uh, compared to uh, plant proteins, which may potentially have some anti-nutrients that doesn't allow it. I want you to give us a, a, a bigger picture of what's going on in that discussion and what do we know? Yeah, so there are, I think, four or five kind of areas to, to tackle. One is, can you get the same amount of protein from plants? Two is, are plant proteins incomplete? That's a you know a concern that comes up a lot. Um, can you absorb 
protein from plant sources, uh, you know, to a similar degree that you can with animal sources. Um, and then, you know, how at the end of the day, how does plant protein compare to animal protein for actually improving muscle or strength? And then, you know, on top of that, we can add in the health and environmental aspects, which are certainly really important to tackle. So on the can you get enough point? Absolutely. Um, you know, when we're when we're talking about, say, swapping out animal foods for plant foods, no one's suggesting swapping out steak for rice. I mean, yeah, rice is gonna be really low in protein, but like that would be a pretty weird, you know, swap. Uh, in most cases, if you were to swap, say, 80% lean beef, which is pretty typical for what most people, most people will probably buy 75 to 80% lean, um, which means, you know, 20 to 25% fat per calorie has about the same amount of protein as firm tofu. Swap that for tofu, calorie per calorie, you get the same amount of protein. If you were to swap it for something made with, say, textured vegetable protein, which is a defatted soy, or with seitan, you can actually increase your protein intake. So think of that, right? You can swap out beef for like soy or a wheat-based protein and actually increase your protein intake. If you were to swap eggs for tofu, you can also increase your protein intake. Um, you know, if you were to swap, say, beef for lentils or something, you decrease it a little bit. So it's a bit lower, about, about eight grams per hundred calories versus beef is about nine and a half to 10 grams per hundred calories. But then you can look at lean meat sources where it's more comparable to those like textured vegetable protein and, and seitan, as I mentioned. So um, that's the, the whole trick is just to replace these animal foods with high protein plant foods, replace dairy milk with soy milk being one of the highest uh, uh, protein plant milks. So that, I think, takes care of that issue. The second concern is uh, around the completeness. So like, do plants contain all the essential amino acids? Now, the real scientific definition for an incomplete protein is one that is completely lacking one of the essential amino acids. And good news is all plants contain all nine of the essential amino acids, full stop. Anyone who says otherwise, that's just not true. Um, now, one thing to note, though, is that the amounts of each amino acid can vary in different plant foods. So some plant foods could have, you know, more of certain amino acids and less of others. So, you know, technically, if you were just to consume a diet of a single plant food, like just black beans, let's say, as your entire diet, and you just barely met the minimum, you know, the recommended dietary allowance RDA for protein at 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, um, then you might actually be deficient in one or two amino acids just because it has less of those. But nobody's advocating for that. We're all advocating for a nice varied diet. You have your legumes, you have your whole grains, you have your nuts and seeds. And I would actually advocate for a higher protein intake because we do tend to see better health outcomes aiming a little bit higher as far as like maintaining, you know, muscle mass, mobility, bone health into older age. So, um, so yeah, bumping it up even by an extra 50% or something seems to be a really good target. Um, so that takes care of the incompleteness. Now on the bioavailability point, there are two scales um, or two kind of scoring systems that are used to suggest that plant proteins are inferior. They are the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score or the PDCAS for short. And then there's the digestible indispensable amino acid score or the DAS or DIAS for short. Now, um, there is a, a few specifics to each one, but I'll just give kind of a broad overview. Basically, what they do is they feed foods to, in the case of PDCAS, mostly rodents. In the case of the DS, mostly pigs, they measure how much protein goes in and how much comes out. And the difference is supposedly how much was absorbed from the given food. Now, with pigs, it's a little different because they don't collect it from the feces. They actually have a tube that inserts to the end of the small intestine. 
uh, where they'll they'll uh, um, they'll kind of measure absorption between the mouth and and the ileum versus going all the way through the digestive tract because some of the bacteria can chew up the protein further down. Uh, but basically, they measure that difference, and that's how much protein is absorbed. And you would think that it would end there, but it doesn't. What they also do is they measure the amino acid profile. So if you're measuring, say, beans, where they're going to have less of, of you know, methionine or, or you know, one of the amino acids, you will, you'll get basically scored on the percentage of that amino acid that is absorbed. So if the percentage of the lowest amino acid does not meet what you need to get in a day, then you get docked points. So it's actually irrelevant to a diet comprised of multiple foods. You're, of course, you're going to have plant food scoring at like 50, 60% uh, in that case. Uh, where, whereas if you were to have a full meal, you could you know, theoretically get a much, much higher score. Um, and the other issue is they typically feed raw foods to the pigs where uh, maybe the protein isn't as bioavailable. So you know, all that to say that there are a lot of issues with applying these scoring systems in the way that we do. Uh, now, we have some data on, on uh, protein digestibility in humans, high-quality protein sources like soy protein, wheat-based protein, and the difference between that and what are considered high-quality animal proteins is a few percent. Like, it's tiny, it's negligible, basically, as far as absorption. So, you know, the, yes, you can get enough protein. Yes, they can be complete, quote-unquote. And yes, you can absorb a fair amount based on the best data we have in, in humans, even if it is a bit less than, than animal sources. At the end of the day, none of that matters if you get ultimately the same outcomes or better outcomes. And we have numerous randomized controlled trials pitting whey protein, which is like the gold standard of protein um, in the animal food world, um, to either rice protein, soy protein, or uh, pea protein, and you get similar outcomes across the board. No significant differences in virtually any muscular strength outcome. And in a more recent study uh, done in 2021, where they pit uh, 19 vegans against 19 meat eaters, had them increase their protein intake up to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, which is what's recommended for strength training, um, and then had them resistance train for 12 weeks. At the end of that, no significant differences in any strength or size outcome. And um, yes, they supplemented to help hit that 1.6 target, soy protein in the case of the vegans, whey protein in the case of the meat eaters. And yes, the vegan group had to supplement a little bit more because they didn't really eat many high protein foods. But most of their protein came from food sources. And so I would suspect if it is true that plant proteins are so inferior if they're getting most of their protein strictly from plants versus meat eaters, I would expect something to show up there and we didn't see any significant differences. So at this point, there is really no reason to be concerned about that. The only, you know, maybe somebody can make an argument for like in the case of elite level powerlifting and where every like slight percentage might matter. Uh, maybe, maybe there's an argument to be made, but even then it could go the other way. Maybe plant protein has a little bit of an advantage. You just can't really draw those conclusions based on what we know so far. Wow. Exactly. That was exactly. so helpful. Beautiful. Uh, Beautiful. I'm so glad you shared all that data. Yeah. And you know, stepping back in and looking at uh, observational and epidemiological studies, you see that people who are on a plant-exclusive diet, as far as frailty studies are concerned, mm -hmm. frailty, weakness, muscle loss, and their longevity altogether, they seem to do very well, whether it's the Adventist Health Study, whether it's uh, the different studies from you know the, the East Asian countries where they look at 
a compilation of data that looks at cognitive function as well as frailty. They tend to do very well and they'll, they'll live very long, healthy lives. So it's pretty consistent. Yeah. And data from actually this came out last year. And I know some people in the protein world got like really angry about these results. Uh, but I do, honestly don't think a lot of them read the paper before um, kind of losing it. But uh, they, uh, the nurses health study, um, some data came out of there where they uh, looked at protein sources and risk of frailty. And plant protein actually improved outcomes relative to animal protein. And here's the reason, though, you know, everyone took that to mean like, oh, this study's clearly flawed, because we know that animal protein can support muscle and strength and that. That's not what it ultimately found. Yes, there were some markers of mobility and and even grip strength, I believe, where animal protein did worse than the plant protein. But where the big difference was, was in risk of chronic diseases. So those eating more animal protein ended up with a greater risk of, of various chronic illnesses. And when you are struggling with chronic illnesses, you're probably going to not be super mobile and probably run into some of these other issues. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think a really good set of data and a good, um, you know, important thing to focus on uh, when talking about protein sources and, you know, strength, because if we're looking at long-term chronic disease risk, I mean, I don't think you're going to be too strong if you're, if you're dealing with some of those, those illnesses. Absolutely. I'm also really uh, glad that you touched on the fact that we now have enough data showing us that uh, protein is important. There was a time for uh, individuals on a plant-based diet who said, just mm -hmm. eat food, don't worry about where your protein comes from. And that's not it, correct? Yeah, yeah. There's actually a meta-analysis from 2020, I believe it was, uh, Nagishi, I think that's how you pronounce her name. I hope I didn't just butcher it. Um, where they took, it's the largest meta-analysis done on protein intake and mortality to date. And they found that higher protein intake was associated with a lower risk of total mortality. But what's really cool about the finding was when they actually went in and they um, used studies that adjusted for other dietary factors, so would better help account for what the protein is replacing, only the plant protein was significantly associated with lower risk. Animal protein was not, and even total protein was no longer uh, statistically significant after really? accounting for what is being replaced. But plant protein still held strong as being beneficial. Amazing. That's that's wonderful data. And all of these people, papers and, and the research that we're talking about, we'll make sure that they're in the show notes for mm -hmm. the audience to take a look at it and read it. Um, so from the studies that have uh, that, you know, have looked at the comparison between animal uh, protein and plant proteins, the content of fat or the type of fat is also a risk factor, which kind of brings us to this idea that um, not all fats are good, there are good fats and there are bad fats, and the addition or the inclusion of saturated fats in animal protein is also a huge risk factor for uh, you know disease outcomes like cardiovascular disease, mm -hmm. uh, Alzheimer's disease in our field, and vascular dementia as well. And from the large observational studies, we know, I think it's very clear that consumption of saturated fat is associated with poor outcomes. But um, again, this is also a point of contention with different people and mm -hmm. they're not sure whether, uh, you know, who to listen to. And there's a lot of misinformation on that. If you could kind of shed some light on it. Yeah, um, it's, it's very clear that saturated fat increases risk of cardiovascular disease. We have um, metabolic ward studies. So this is where researchers have complete control over the participant's diet and you can modify them and see what happens. And we see that as saturated fat increases, um, LDL cholesterol goes up. We also know that the association between um, LDL and, and cardiovascular, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, as I already mentioned, is causal. So, so that's something to be concerned about. But then we see this in observational research. 
but only when a few things are are considered. So, you know, there when Time Magazine printed the butter is back thing that was mm-hmm. based on a meta analysis that that included some we'll say very suspect studies, and and I'll, I'll go over why. So, for one, we talked about at the beginning uh, that that you know food frequency questionnaires are often validated against other measures. The majority of the studies included in that meta-analysis did not use validated food frequency questionnaires. So we don't even know how good those questionnaires were. So that, that's one thing, maybe not the biggest issue out of the things I'm going to say, but definitely one. Another issue is not a lot of the studies had a huge contrast in saturated fat intakes. And what I mean by that is when you compare low saturated fat to high saturated fat intake, the difference might not have been very big in several of the studies. Whereas in order to see a significant um, you know, uh, increase or, or decrease in risk, you need to look at a comparison between, say, like 8% of total calories versus like 12% of total calories, not like 11% versus 12 or 13%. You might right. not see anything there. Um, so that's an, another issue. And this is one of the biggest ones. As I mentioned, increasing saturated fat increases your LDL cholesterol, and then the higher LDL cholesterol increases risk of cardiovascular disease. Well, what a lot of the studies do is they adjust for LDL cholesterol. And what that means is you're comparing people with similar LDL cholesterol levels. So if saturated fat increases disease risk by increasing LDL cholesterol, but you only compare people with similar cholesterol, of course, you're not going to see the association. It's like if, you know, if, if Aisha and I were being compared in this study and just genetically my, my LDL tends to be lower, but I also eat way more saturated fat than Aisha, we might end up with the same LDL cholesterol and it'll look like saturated fat's not a problem. Um, and so it, it just doesn't account for the, or they're kind of removing that as, as a variable by adjusting. And, and so, um, so it's just almost useless at that point. Um, but when you, when you properly do these analyses where you have a good contrast in level of saturated fat intake, where you don't adjust for the cholesterol, you know, the, the moderator variable, um, and, uh, and you have, you know, a decent length of follow-up in a maybe at-risk age group. You know, you obviously don't want to necessarily do the study in 20-year-olds. You're not going to see much. But um, once you get, you know, 50, 60, 70-year-old, yeah, it's very, very consistent that we see that there's an increase in risk. And that's why guidelines recommend incre- or keeping saturated fat at least under 10% of your total calories. That's about, you know, 22 grams. We'll say 20 to 25 grams for most people uh, in a whole day or you know, the American Heart Association recommends even less. I think it's down around like 7% or, or lower. And, and so really the lower, the better is, is what I would say. Right. Wonderful. And, you know, same goes for neurodegenerative diseases as well. We now know that there's a very strong link between consumption of saturated fats and Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia in multiple different studies. And it just, um, it, it's kind of interesting that you get to see statements saying, you know, the brain is made out of fat, therefore you Mm -hmm. need to eat fat and especially saturated fats. But the truth is the brain actually doesn't even have the capacity to absorb saturated fats. So all you're doing is introducing this harmful fat that causes damage to the endothelium of these tiny little arteries that supply nutrition and oxygen to the brain, damaging it. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and yeah, again, I'm t- trying to be positive no, no. and very objective here, but it's kind of sad to see that misinformation just, you know, going around. And I know you, you've you seen it, some some people mm-hmm. on Instagram talking about it over and over again, which is crazy that no, saturated fat is not associated with better brain health. Yeah, no, 100% agree. Um, speaking of fat, um, 
and consumption of fat. Um, as far as the dietary patterns are concerned, and we talked about it earlier, whether it's the Mediterranean or the Mayan diet, um, they're not low fat. You know, they do mm-hmm. have fat, but it's the type of fat that matters. And so they're they're higher in polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats compared to saturated fats. And it is that particular element is considered to be the health promoting uh, almost corner of that dietary pattern. Uh, I know that we've talked about extra virgin olive oil as being a very prominent Mediterranean diet element. Do you think, and I would love to hear this, do you think that it's because of some intrinsic benefit in the extra virgin olive oil, or do you think it's a replacement phenomenon that, you know, people eat more extra virgin olive oil compared to saturated fat in those dietary patterns? Um, I think it's both. And actually, before jumping into the oil, you just reminded me of something. Another big variable in the saturated fat research is what saturated fat is replacing. So if you replace refined grains, refined carbohydrates with saturated fat, then yeah, you might not see a difference. But if you replace it with either whole grain sources or unsaturated fat rich sources, then again, you see a benefit. Um, so yeah, just wanted to uh, uh, touch on that really quick. That's an important uh, point. Yeah. Yeah. And then with the um, with the olive oil. So I think it's a bit of both. I think it's partly the replacement phenomenon for sure. That will always matter is, is what you're replacing it with and replacing, you know, butter with almost anything is going to be beneficial. Um, but there could be some intrinsic uh, components. So we know the monounsaturated fats and there may be uh, cardioprotective. Uh, we know that extra virgin olive oil is rich in polyphenols that may be cardioprotective. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to separate um, you know, research on the polyphenols from the foods themselves. So it's, it's hard to really say it's cause and effect necessarily, but certainly potential there. There is some some mechanistic reasoning to think it might be the case. But notice I'm not strongly claiming that like some people do. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I would say that it's a little bit of both. Um, and when it comes to oils, I'm just a fan of the liquid oils, basically. That's what I tell patients is, is like, you can't really go wrong, whether it's olive, whether it's avocado, whether it's canola, despite the uh, the concerns over that. Um, uh, just yeah. maybe not so much the coconut oil, which is rich in saturated fat, and definitely not the butter, which is uh, which is probably even worse. Um, I know you did a really fantastic. Uh, you had a fantastic conversation with Simon Hill on on seed oil, <laughs> and I you know, I highly recommend for people <laughs> to listen to that. But could you touch on that again? I know because there's yeah. uh, every opportunity that I want to get is to highlight the importance of evidence based information mm-hmm. on seed oil. Yeah, so you know, it's really funny. Um, seed oils, which would or vegetable oils, they're used interchange. The names are, are used interchangeably uh, a lot of the time. So canola oil, grapeseed oil, sunflower oil, safflower oil, um, all of those. They are actually in the literature consistently associated with lower risk of of cardiovascular disease, of uh, uh, all cause mortality. Uh, when we look at uh, research again, from the nurses' health study and health professionals' follow-up study on olive oil intake, they found that substituting olive oil for uh, uh, canola oil did not result in any significant you know, differences in, in outcomes. Um, so possibly very similarly beneficial. And when it comes to LDL cholesterol, canola oil actually lowers it more than olive oil. Mm-hmm. And, and that's largely because of the polyunsaturated fats in there, the omega-3s and omega-6s. Um, now, one of the concerns is that the omega-6 fats, the linoleic acid in, in not just canola oil, but other seed oils as well, can increase the increase inflammation and ultimately lead to disease. But like I said before, we have to take a step back and the health outcome data doesn't support that. Where those concerns come from is that theoretically, 
this linoleic acid, this omega-6 fat, can be converted into another type of omega-6 fat called arachidonic acid. And that fat may have inflammatory properties in some cases. So it's like there's multiple levels of you know assumptions that are being made along that path. Um, whereas, yeah, exactly. And it's just like the exercise inflammation comparison I made. Well, what actually happens in reality? Um, and, and funny enough, there's not a single study ever, ever conducted that has shown the canola oil or other seed oils increase inflammation. Has not been shown. Either a neutral effect or a reduction of risk. Consistently. Now, there's one case in the, in the person I debated on Simon's uh, uh, podcast where they conducted a meta-analysis and they actually suggest that it increased um, inflammation, but that wasn't the case. If you go into the specific studies, it just decreased inflammation less than the comparison oil. That was it. Wow. So it, it, you know, it was, it's not at all anything to be concerned about. I, um, I, I really, next to, next to whole grains and that that I already mentioned, I think this is the other area where the evidence is so one-sided, but everyone gets mixed okay. up in it. We actually have a double-blind randomized controlled trial long-term randomized, it's like eight years or so, so eight or 10 years um, on seed oils versus uh, butter and long-term health outcomes. Uh, this was done in the LA Veterans Hospital Administration study. And um, so this is, you know, people living in, in this, uh, in this um, you know, housing facility and uh, they were blinded. So they didn't know what they were consuming and they were randomized to one cafeteria or another for a period of, of almost a decade. Um, now, they, before conducting this study, they actually did a separate little study where they made sure that people couldn't tell the difference or that both foods were palatable. Because what they did was they removed the saturated fat from the foods and literally infused it with polyunsaturated fat, with vegetable oils, even like ice cream. They just infused it with polyunsaturated fats. Absolutely wow. wild. There's never been another dietary study like it. And, um, you know, at the end of that study, there was a substantial reduction in risk of cardiovascular events in the um, seed oil group compared to the, uh, the, um, uh, the butter group or the, the animal. Sorry, I shouldn't say just butter, animal saturated fat group. And, and so like that's at least for people claiming that animal fat is superior. That's really strong and damning evidence against their position. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so we can say with good level of confidence that <laughs> yeah. butter is not bad, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's crazy, though, how people get so emotional and kind of upset about seed oil. It's just thought of as this toxic, poisonous substance that everybody should stay away from. It's just unbelievable, especially looking at the data that you just uh, shared yeah. with us. Yeah, and I want to be clear. It was not like their diet was made of ice cream. That was just one example of a dessert. They Even with, like, mm -hmm. meats. Yeah. With meats, they removed the the um, saturated fat and infused it with polyunsaturated fat and everything. It was just, they went above and beyond. Um, yeah. Amazing. All right. Well, um, let's talk about some of these yeah. um, anti-nutrients that, you know, is being discussed. And um, Dean actually talked, I don't know if I should name names, but, uh, you know, the, 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 person <laughs> who, the person who promotes... Um, uh, the whole lectin concept. But it's, it's, it's understood, so it's we don't have to, yeah. 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 <laughs> we had multiple conversations with them, but things like phytates and oxalates and lectins or plants are bad because they have anti-nutrients. And yet you see large data showing that people who eat more plants live longer and they do well. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? Like what is going on? What's in that the realm? truth when it comes yeah. to the weight and when it comes to lectins? Yeah, so um, so for starters, you just nailed it. Yeah, when we look at the health outcome data, people eating beans, which are rich in lectins, for example, 
we see that they have great health outcomes. So clearly it's not killing us the way that it apparently is supposed to. Um, but with lectins, the big thing is, for starters, there's different types of lectins. Uh, you know, in some foods like tomatoes, they're not harmful. Um, in foods like red kidney beans, for example, they can be dangerous. They can actually be toxic, but they're destroyed with cooking. So even if you were to, uh, you know, there was a study that looked at boiling. In like 15 minutes, lectins were undetectable. Okay. And you're probably going to boil kidney beans a lot longer than that, or beans in general a lot longer than that. If you cook them to the point that they're soft, no more lectins. No reason to be concerned whatsoever. And so all it is is about just properly preparing the foods. Um, and in those cases, yeah, there's just no reason to really be concerned about them. Uh, and those foods that contain them are typically very, very healthy. Yeah. Absolutely. Amazing. So no, no need to worry about that. And, and much of the, uh, the movement that's going on now, which is this uh, carnivore movement, is based mm -hmm. on the fact that they th they're, they're making the argument, and what I've heard from them is that plants have this self-defense mechanism. Uh, in order not to be eaten, they had created this, they had evolved this self-defense mechan mechanism that's either toxic or poisonous mm -hmm. to those organisms that consume it. Or, yeah. uh, and And... To some extent, that makes sense, at least on the surface, um, whether it's uh, you know, having a GI issue so that they can extrude the seed and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But those are so nominal. Yes, those yeah. are so min minuscule that and exaggerated beyond the truth of the matter. In fact, we do, I mean, like you said, we've said this multiple times today. The large data is, is so self-evident that plants are healthy. And that concept of anti-nutrient is a very small part of the story. I think... One thing that we should actually come out of this conversation is this this idea of the how the small meaning or less meaningful element of a uh, um, uh, argument is being highlighted and exaggerated uh, at a loss to the greater story repeatedly and and this is repeating itself over and over over, over years and decades okay. um, or on the opposite side is the deficiency phenomenon oh. Plants have vitamin deficiency, vitamin B12 deficiency. Well, we have 41% of the United States have vitamin B12 deficiency. But let's say if that's true, there's less vitamin B12 in plant sources. What about all the benefits? So the totality of the picture is not being taken. Um, and, and I think your job, which you're, what, what a, I mean, you're a great communicator. And, and one of the most important things in the, realm of, in the world of AI in a world where if, uh, you know, even human beings that can be uh, you know, faked, we have to figure out a better way to communicate data well, to mm -hmm. communicate the weight of the data well, because the battle is around that weight, because you can find all kinds of little nuances to exaggerate, but how do we communicate the, the weight of the data is so critical. And, and nothing is more relevant to me when it comes to lectin. They took the smallest part, the true part, it's true. It is okay. true that their lectins are a thing mm -hmm. and it's in certain, and they exaggerated to the point that it became a best-selling book, best-selling products. It's, it's remarkable. And a world yeah. of confusion. And if you check the yeah. references, if you check the references, they don't even line up with the claims that are made. They don't. You don't yeah. have to go far. You can check the very first reference does not or the claim does not, or the reference does not support the claim. I remember, yes, 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 yes. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. It's, it's sad, but that's how it is, and that's why we appreciate you. Okay. Um, let's uh, jump into uh, one oh. of your recent posts. Actually, was on alcohol, and I know that Dean has made some, um, some, some. You know, he's written some blogs and information on alcohol, and we haven't been more attacked on anything than oh, alcohol. Yeah. 
I couldn't believe yeah. it. I got the same thing this this most recent time. Um, right. It's just wild. It really is. It's uh, it's one of those sensitive topics, but you know the latest Canadian guideline actually significantly reduced the emphasis on alcohol. Not only did it not say that people need to drink alcohol for better cardiovascular health, it completely said that uh, if they reduce it significantly, if if you know it should be, uh, I, I don't remember the numbers, but you know even if you're not drinking it, that's great. You're not really going to see any health mm -hmm. benefits, correct? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, the guidelines change. Now they say that the, the safest level is zero. Uh, low risk level is um, one to two drinks a week, not per day. Uh, and then from there, just risk increases as intake increases. Um, now, what they did was they looked at a variety of health outcomes. They looked at like tuberculosis, they looked at cancer risks, they looked at other respiratory illnesses, they looked at uh, cardiovascular disease split up into both heart disease and stroke. And um, and uh, there was a, a number of them. And, and they also talked about some of the acute risks of intoxication and everything as well. And, you know, ultimately what they found is even at those very, very low levels of intake, there is an increase in risk of some health outcomes like certain cancers. So that seems to be more or less the linear association. And, and so there doesn't seem to be a safe level there. Now, what they also found was that those low levels of intake were not significantly protective against cardiovascular disease like has previously been believed. And one of the thoughts behind why that is, is that, you know, similar to with the artificial sweeteners, people who don't drink at all often don't drink because they previously had issues with alcohol or health concerns that might be exacerbated by alcohol. So that can make it look like non-drinkers are worse off than light drinkers. Um, but more recent uh, papers have really questioned that. There was a what's called a Mendelian randomization uh, study where you know people who are genetically maybe predisposed to not drinking versus drinking a bit, um, they can be studied over basically a lifetime. And uh, you see that that those who are maybe light drinkers actually aren't significantly protected against uh, disease either, might even increase risk a little bit. And so they took all of this data of all of these different health outcomes and then they they modeled it. So they essentially calculated, you know, how many um, lives would be saved or how many lives would be lost out of a, a certain number at a certain level of intake. And what they found was that at two drinks per week, that would result in one premature death per thousand people. And they consider that pretty low risk. So that was how they determined that. Now at six drinks a week, so just under one a day, uh, it was one premature death out of 100. So now you're up to 1%. And then from there, it just goes up and up and up. Um, and so that's how they set those cutoffs for, you know, what we consider low risk versus, you know, moderate risk versus high risk. So that's pretty remarkable. One drink per day, it's no. one in a hundred. Roughly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's just remarkable. That that's is just yeah. remarkable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think... Um... I hope that this actually shows, and um, especially in addition to a recent study that showed that there's almost a dose-response relationship of you know alcohol consumption and disease outcome. The more people actually drink, the worse the outcomes are. As a matter of fact, uh, there was one study that showed that additional drinks on top of one drink per day can exponentially increase the risk of disease outcomes too. Mm -hmm. So. I think it's safe for us to say that there is no such thing as a safe amount of alcohol. And when you look at the dietary patterns like the Mediterranean diet that includes wine in them, 
we feel, and Dean has actually spoken about this in the past, is like in spite of having alcohol, that dietary mm-hmm. pattern seems to be healthy because of all the other salutary effects of plants and unsaturated fats and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So it's not because of wine that it's healthy. That's yeah, the separation pe- that people need to understand. Yeah, and people often point to like the antioxidants of red wine and whatnot. And like I just haven't seen good evidence that it's protective. But yeah, I didn't say it's theoretically possible that it's less harmful than maybe other forms of alcohol. I think that might be a more fair conclusion, but it still doesn't mean it's 100% safe. Mm-hmm. So right. um, yeah. until we have really solid data suggesting it is, I would assume it's probably not. What is your understanding of resveratrol and longevity and health outcomes? I mean, there's a little bit of, of I'd say, pretty preliminary data on like cognitive outcomes. Um, obviously, there's research in like animal models and whatnot. I would not draw any strong conclusions mm-hmm. around resveratrol right now. And then even then, um, let's say it is beneficial. That's isolated resveratrol. It's not combined with a, a neurotoxin in the form of mm-hmm. alcohol, right? So, so when you you know you have to look at the full full component, the full food that you're consuming or beverage you're consuming, not what a, you know, a given chemical does on its own. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Beautifully stated. Uh, some of the contemporary diets that, you know, keep coming back to us over and over again is fasting or time restricted diets or, uh, you know, um, and, and there's some products out in the market that actually help people go on a fasting mimicking diet and um, we don't really have good evidence as far as brain health is concerned and, you know, for, for fasting specifically. Uh, have you come across anything for other disease outcomes? I mean, there's a little bit of, of research on, uh, actually, I'd say there's a fair amount of research on like weight loss and a little bit of research on other like cardiometabolic risk factors, blood sugar management, which again, comes kind of hand in hand with, with weight loss as well. Um, but it seems that the majority of the benefit to these time-restricted eating patterns or intermittent fasting are actually um, due largely to the the weight loss and aren't unique to um, uh, aren't unique to those diets. If you compare a time-restricted diet to one that's just calorie restricted in general, and you get a similar amount of weight loss, you end up with similar outcomes in the majority mm-hmm. of cases. So, it could be a really useful tool for people who seem to have a much easier time adhering to it and, uh, you know, end up, you know, getting some say weight loss benefits or whatever they're looking for from it. But I wouldn't say it's necessarily much superior to other methods, whether it's a, you know, fiber rich, low calorie density diet, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's kind of where I'd sit on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Dean always says, try to reduce your calories and try to eat more plants rather than mm-hmm. focusing on not eating for a certain amount yeah. of time yeah. when it yeah. comes to health outcomes. This was beautiful, Matt. Um, I actually wanted to uh, kind of like bring it to uh, a discussion of, uh, you know, dietary patterns and our choices. Um, I know, I know you're you're vegan, and we are as well. And um, there are not a lot of vegans who are kind of openly saying that, uh, you, you know, there are many ways to eat a healthy diet, right? So the ethics part of it is important for us. It's been a part and parcel of our life, but we're also cognizant of the fact that not everybody can be that or chooses to be that and that there are multiple ways of getting to a better health outcome. Uh, And instead of pushing veganism as the best kind of a lifestyle Mm -hmm. or a dietary pattern to get to that point, we have to like step back and just be evidence-based about it. I I want you to kind of just talk about that Mm -hmm. because that means a lot to us as well. And I think one way to be able to share 
uh, evidence-based information out to the public is for them to trust you that you're not being nitpicky and cherry-picking and biased in your mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah, like I've actually had some people, perhaps some some big names in the online space who have you know, either refused to engage or dismiss what I said on the basis that I'm vegan. And my reply is always like, look, I'll openly admit that fish is ultimately a healthy protein source and low-fat dairy can be a part of a healthy diet. Now, can we discuss, please? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Like, there's there's nothing wrong with accepting that as likely true while still promoting a strictly plant-based diet for the ethical and environmental reasons. I think where we run into problems and actually do our own movement a disservice is when we lie or exaggerate because it gives people fodder. Like if someone wants to point out that I'm cherry picking something or I left out some some data points and it's true, well then yeah, that looks really bad on me. Then people might not trust what what we say as as advocates of a vegan lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But if we're honest about it and we acknowledge the fact that okay, fish was associated with great health outcomes in this study, but ultimately if the omega-3s are to blame, we can supplement that. Um, and uh, and when we look at health outcome data, plant protein sources seem to result in similar outcomes, so we can eat more of those. Um, you know, if we can understand that and say, yeah, we don't want to contribute to the mass suffering and death of, of you know tens of billions of animals, trillions if we include sea life across the globe, uh, as well as as uh, making sure there's a earth here for our, our uh, um, you know uh, children, grandchildren, and so on, then why, you know, why not um, make that switch over to a plant-based diet? Mm-hmm. And why do we have to to exaggerate? There's just nothing, there's no need to exaggerate. And when you don't do that, I, I just think you give people way less to try to pick out of your arguments. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we approach it the same way. And, uh, but even then, despite that, because in every conversation, you need honest participants mm-hmm. and uh, truly honest participants. And, yeah. and if, if there are people who are actually, uh, they have their biases, that they're, uh, they're, uh, they're protecting their biases, then no matter how you come at, come at it, honestly, uh, you're a threat because now you're even more of a threat. Wait a second. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the narrative that these are um, 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 you know, myopic vegans who have just, are being driven by ideology is now gone. Yeah. We always say fish is healthy. If that's your alternative, definitely do it. And then, so what's left is just facts, and that puts them at greater threat. So we're, that's another complication of uh, debates that we have to deal with on a daily basis. Right. Yeah, and, and there's, I, honestly, in my view, the people who claim to be unbiased, claim to be, oh, we eat all, all food groups, so we don't have any biases, are the most biased. Out of yeah. every interaction I've ever had, hands down, I would say they tend to be the most biased. Um, and they just hide behind this guise of, well, I eat animal, then I eat plants, therefore I, I don't have a bias. It, it's actually, there's a, a fallacy, it's called a bias blind spot. So people aren't aware of their own biases. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just really, that is probably one of the more frustrating things, but, uh, but it's certainly out there. And I think if you really look for it, it becomes pretty obvious. I mean, along that line, we're, on the other side, we're seeing this massive movement of carnivore dietitians. Not even dietitians. The other day I saw, I, I would be shocked if this young lady was more than 18 years old. Oh, no. And she was, it's, you, you could see that she's kind of reading a script, but, um, um, uh, and it's uh, the carnivore. Uh, she, she was pushing the carnivore diet, the carnivore ideology, carnivore lifestyle. And, it, and that's, that's, that comes from this confirmation bias that, that, that and, and, 
And what happens is those pseudoscientists that create the language for them, that's the problem. You, mm -hmm. you just create the language as uh, anti-nutrients and plants have these defense mechanisms and 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 meat is superior, superior protein. To, yeah. Yeah. yeah or the other one we saw which is if you if you're, you have liver problems eat liver that makes yeah. sense because yeah. liver stuff. Uh, and and he, on in the same talk he actually said for brain it would and it makes sense to for people to eat brains i'm like have you even heard of the disease kuru and yeah. prion diseases that killed people but uh, that's that's a that's a movement that now we're facing now it's the same kind of movement that we were facing with coconut oil or with with others, but this is a bigger one because it's actually confirming a bigger bias that a larger percentage of people have. Yeah, and they're trying to publish papers to support their view. It's like they're they're actually posting on Twitter, hey, if you want to be involved in the study, and if you've experienced benefits from the carnivore diet, sign up and do the survey at this link. And so they're actually enrolling people specifically who claim to have benefits. And I did I did the survey just out of curiosity to see the questions, not a single place to input an issue. You literally oh, don't wow. have a place to input any concerns that came up on the diet. It's literally just benefits or changes in medication. That is the one instance where I guess if your medications got worse or you had to take higher doses that it could look like a negative outcome. But otherwise, otherwise there aren't any. And these are, you know, this is something that will eventually, I'm sure, get published, just like the last Facebook survey thing they did was published in a, in a medical journal. Um, and, uh, and they're trying to create kind of a scientific you know, backing to their arguments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm concerned more about selection <clears throat> bias yeah, because you yeah. know, oh, yeah, first of, of all, of being course. on Twitter, second, being so motivated that you're yeah. going to click on that link. Yeah. Third, you really are passionate about the subject and you're going to contribute yeah. to it. Yeah. It's, and, it's and, and last, your only options are positive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. You can't complain. You just yeah. have to say good things about it. Yeah, right. That's a but great the, study. These are the people. These are the people who complain about biases in epidemiological or observational research in the, right, in the right. like high quality nutrition research. They're the same well, ones that, that complain is, about biases and compounding. Yeah, that is insane. But yeah. here's to more nuanced, complicated uh, conversations. Here's to more uh, wholesome conversations nope. and honest conversations. But this is challenging because what I was talking about before is the gish fallacy, which is just all of a sudden they get they start throwing data information at you and try to overwhelm the 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 audience and if they keep creating these false data you know and and they will have 10 20 papers published uh, just like this false data or or even moving you know uh, basically falsifying data then you get in a discussion they'll throw paper after paper after paper but none of this was validated that's the problem so we're going to Close conversation by uh, this one question. Where do you see nutritional science go going forward in the future? What is, What are we all looking forward to? Um, you know, like we've kind of highlighted, I think the sort of foundations for healthy nutrition are, are pretty well settled at this point. I think we have a good grasp on that. Um, I think a couple things that could help tease out maybe some of the nuances would be uh, precision nutrition. So maybe mm -hmm. identifying those you know, differences, say genetic differences that, that might, you know, predispose someone to doing better, you know, with a bit more of certain things, a bit less of others. Um, I don't expect that to mean anybody's going to do better on a carnivore diet or something that's drastically different than, than what we already know. But, uh, but there might be subtle differences. And I think that would be really cool to explore. And I think just more and more research on, um, on uh, biomarkers of, of uh, food intake. So, you know, there's this, 
growing kind of area where you can measure markers in the body that reflect intake of certain foods or nutrients and uh, see how that relates to health outcomes. And that could really give us a, a good, maybe more precise estimate um, as to how foods impact risk versus, again, relying on food frequency questionnaires and things like that that are still really good, but not perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautifully yeah. stated. Matt, this was so amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I hope this is the first of many conversations going forward. I know it is. Yeah. <laughs> and we look forward to seeing you in person so we can sit across each other and have more conversations in the future. Sounds good. I'll look forward to seeing you guys hopefully this summer. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. We'll yeah. make it Thank happen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for having me on.